the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. As Christians, we understand how horrible it is to partake in idolatry. We understand how evil it is that idolatry even exists in this world and has existed since almost the beginning of time. What we may not have been as familiar with is the fact that even participating remotely in any sort of idolatry as we have seen with the Corinthians, simply going to a birthday party or a wedding feast at a temple, eating meat that had just moments ago been sacrificed to a false pagan god, is in and of itself a part of idolatry. And what we have been seeing in 1 Corinthians is in the greater realm of gray areas, doing things that in and of themselves may not be wrong, but in preference for other people and for the sake of the Lord's glory, many of those gray areas we should choose to forsake. Well, as we continue and look at the reality of idolatry and what God sees in that and in the participation, though very remotely by the Corinthians 2,000 years ago, we continue our study in the revealing reality of idolatry. If you haven't already, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're looking at verses 14 through 22 over these past two weeks. We will finish up, but let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 through 22. Again, we started this last week, and we'll finish up this section this morning. Let me read that for you. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread... We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than He, are we? We've been looking at five concluding realities of idolatry, concluding because we've come to the end of a long study regarding this topic. And again, we're not talking about full-blown participation or idol worship, going in and praying to Buddha or worshiping Zeus or whatever it may be. He is addressing the practice of some of the Corinthian Christians of simply having a meal at a temple. Last week we saw the first two of these concluding realities of idolatry. 
And by way of review, the first one was the reality of inference. In verses 14 and 15, again, he calls them beloved. We see his love for them, and he uses the word flee. Flee idolatry to emphasize that they are to have absolutely nothing to do with idolatry. Which again doesn't just mean to avoid full-blown idolatry, but means to have no part in any semblance or subset of idolatry. Even these days, if that idol worship happens to use the Bible, have nothing to do with it. And the word means to run. Run away and keep on running when it comes to such things. Paul is specifically addressing some of the Corinthian believers' habit of attending meals at the temples after that pagan worship service. But the fact that this is what he is telling them to flee shows us how even seemingly innocuous and peripheral aspects of idolatry have no place in the Christian's life. In verse 15, as we saw, Paul assumes that this is obvious to them. Given all the information that he has already supplied, they will naturally come to this conclusion on their own. It's a known brainer. You are wise. You get it, he says. The reality is, though, that many things are clear to us in the Scriptures. They come to the logical conclusion of flee in our minds. But oftentimes the temptation is so great the pleasure so appealing, the sin so satisfying that though we come to the right conclusion intellectually, we participate in the wrong practically. We know it's wrong. We know it's wrong when we're doing it. We knew it was wrong before we did it. We now feel guilty because we've always known it's wrong. So despite having enough to go on to flee idolatry and to come to that conclusion on their own, Paul continues by setting up the illustrative significance of the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper, communion, three terms for the same thing. And we looked at our second concluding reality of idolatry last week, the reality of identification. In verses 16 through 18, let me read again. He says, "'Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ?' Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? Though when we take communion in the Christian church, we understand that what we are doing and even the physical elements, they are symbolic. The institution of this symbolism that is to be a regular part of the church's life, however, shows how serious this is. He says, this is my body. This is my blood. Now we know it's symbolic because nowhere does he say he miraculously becomes or those elements become the body and blood as some teach. Nor, more to the point, at the Last Supper when he instituted this, he did not literally cut himself and bleed into a cup and say, drink this. He didn't cut pieces of his flesh off and say to eat it. He didn't even cut off something that wouldn't have hurt, like hair or fingernails. It was symbolic at the very institution of it, at the Last Supper with the disciples. It is symbolic today. 
But the seriousness of all of this is made all the more profound when taking into account what communion symbolizes. Ultimately, it is the sacrifice of the Lord on our behalf. It is the crux of the gospel. It is the crux of our lives. It is the crux of why this world still exists. The cup represents the blood, which represents His death. The bread represents His body, which represents His death. And when Paul says that we share in the blood and body of Christ, we are sharing in all the benefits of what that blood and body did for us and to us, namely redemption and all that it entails. Things like blessings, things like trusting in God, things as like we saw a couple weeks ago, a way of escape and all temptation, a place in heaven and eternity secure. All of those things start from the cross, start from salvation, redemption. So we have all of that. And ultimately, it is the body and blood, it is the death of Christ that we are symbolically representing and taking of in communion. But there is a flood of immensity that is attached to that. From the first step of faith and the forgiveness of sins, through the constant forgiveness and spiritual material blessings involved in the Christian life, all the way to the eternity we will inherit and enjoy forevermore. The pattern, Paul goes on to illustrate, was set for us long ago in the Israelite Passover in which the death of the Lamb saved them physically, followed by their salvation from Egypt. The celebration of the Passover was then instituted by command for the nation of Israel, for Jews, to be commemorated on an annual basis. This special meal in remembrance of that special day of deliverance from Egypt set them apart as God's unique and holy people. And because of that, there was a sharing, a fellowship with each other as a people. They had that in common. It made them unique. It bound them in commonality and spiritual brotherhood. In the same way, communion does that for us. It's not just about the uniqueness of doing this at a church while only focusing on your salvation that that represents, but it is the uniqueness, like Israel, of a common experience in sharing in the body and blood of Christ with all Christians everywhere, and especially and specifically those in the local church sitting next to you as you do it. In other words, in all the known universe, nobody else does this. Nobody else even gets it. It makes us a people unique in this world, and so it binds us in commonality and spiritual brotherhood. And as such, we must live that out. The brotherhood. Communion must remind us of who we are as a chosen family of God and how we need to treat each other, which in most cases is better than we do now. You see, like Sunday morning worship, communion is not like watching a movie. It's it's just you and the screen, and what matters is that you're not interrupted. No, that's not what it's like. 
It's about you and your relationship with God for sure. But it's also about your relationship with all those who partake or should partake of the Lord's table. You see the difference? In a movie, it doesn't matter. You don't talk. It's just you. You just want to enjoy. Maybe it's more like a game where you're high-fiving the fans around you. You're all, you're all wearing the same jersey, the same logo. And let me make this practical for you. We take communion because what Christ did on the cross matters. And what Christ did on the cross matters because you matter. You are the one He died for. You are the one He saved. The reverse is even more true. You matter because of what Christ did on the cross. And I don't mean you matter in a general sense. You matter in a specific sense. You as an individual. Every one of you. Your presence. You, singular. Your presence. Not just those people. Not just those people. Your presence and participation are important to all of us. I get it happens from time to time. We all have different issues in our lives. Medical issues. Work issues. But if as a habit, knowingly, you stroll into church late all the time or you don't show up at all, that affects all of us. Because again, it's not like an annoying disturbance as someone walks in late to a movie theater and it's really ultimately just about you and the movie. It affects us because we are family and this is about all of us as a unit, as a community. Can the hand say to the foot, I have no need of you? We are a body. And when you on a consistent basis belong to this body and do not show up, do not show concern, do not serve and be served and think it's no big deal, I would ask you if you think it would be no big deal and you would say nothing or ask nothing or not open your eyes wide if I showed up with a missing leg on crutches. Would that just be no big deal? Why the eye patch? You doing something funny for your kids? No, I lift it up and my eye is literally gone. Would that be no big deal? You matter. You matter to the Lord and God has created the church so that we all matter to one another. This is the danger of putting sermons online or on the radio or even live streaming. Very helpful but can be a danger if it's an excuse not to physically join the body and celebrate in this unique way that is meant to set us apart and join us together in a way that the world does not and cannot know. How extra confused they are when they see that we embrace this thing as so unique and then half of us don't even bother to show up. My friends, you must rid yourselves of this selfish and frankly arrogant notion that I can just live stream forever. I can just listen to the sermon online later. Because as long as I'm worshiping and as long as I'm getting something out of it, then it's okay. Or as long as I show up, it doesn't matter when, or as long as I show up once in a while, it's okay. That is not why God created the church, nor why He called the people to Himself. You didn't call a family reunion 
and pay for everyone to go to some exotic destination just for some people to say, nah, I don't think so. I was tired, and so I just missed my flight. I'm not going to show up. I'm not going to go on the cruise with the rest of the family. I'm not going to say hello to great-grandmother for the last time probably that I'll ever see her on this planet. That's not okay. You have to understand that church is not just a club. It's not just a movie theater. It's not just a store where you just show up and when you feel like you need something, you come. We need you to be here. It's a local church. It's the body. God called it the body, Christ's body, for a reason. I get times have been different for the last year and a half. And what I am asking is you understand the uniqueness of who we are as a people. If you've ever thought of our church, and you're a regular attender or you're a member, and you've thought of our church as them, I can't believe they are meeting in person again. I can't believe so many of them are going in person. Then you have missed the whole point because you have somehow disconnected yourself from the body. If I said, I'm going to go, I got to go to a meeting. And my arm just said, no, I can't believe they're going to that meeting. Right? Or I walk outside and I cut open my foot and it's bleeding. And my hand says, nope, not going to help with the Band-Aid. Don't want anything to do with it. It's them. Told them not to go outside anyways. Agree or disagree with masks or vaccines or in person or outside or inside shaking hands, hugging, whatever, agree or disagree, you cannot disagree with Scripture that says we need you, you belong as part of our body. So much so that God instituted communion so that we would remember and recognize together what we are and what price He paid so that we could be a body. But let's move on. That was our review. This morning, our third reality of uh, concluding reality of idolatry is the reality of immorality. The reality of immorality. Look at verses 19 and 20. What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice... They sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. All of a sudden, this got really serious. It's not just some sort of disobedience like we disobey all the time. He's bringing in demons. And the questions he asks in verse 19 address the confusion that may arise from the fact that back in chapter 8 and verse 4, he said that idols are nothing and the food sacrificed to them are nothing. Yet here, for much ink, with much ink, he is saying that attending a temple feast or eating meat sacrificed to idols is a big problem. I thought you said it's nothing. Go back to 8.4. 1 Corinthians. He said this, 
Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. He isn't in denial saying that, oh, there's no, there's no idols, I don't see any idols. He knows that idols exist. He's just saying that they're not a person. They're not a deity that exists. All that exists is some piece of wood or marble or metal that was molded or shaped or carved into something that looks like a person or an animal. Now, he still believes what he said in chapter 8, verse 4 is true, right? I know you get this, but we take uh, much time going through the Scriptures. And so we were in chapter 8, like what, three years ago? No, it wasn't that long. It was a few months ago, right? But he didn't take months to write this letter, right? He just probably wrote this a few minutes ago. If, even if he took a break, maybe it was just a couple hours or a day ago. He didn't change his theology from chapter 8 to chapter 10. He still believes it's true. It's just a piece of wood, a sculpted piece of marble. There's nothing that exists within that statue. It has no ontological reality. There, it's just a social construct that man has created. A religion, sure, a community, a type of commitment and worship. But in doing so, they're not worshiping the one true God. They are worshiping something else. And despite having no metaphysical existence within that statue, that idol, they are by no means neutral. They are demonic. And they represent the demonic. When the pagan worshipers sacrifice They are sacrificing to demons, though they may not even know it. It's not that a demon is residing in that statue. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that whole system of any particular pagan religion revolves around an idol, thus making it a spiritual reality. After all, they would say that that is their spiritual side. Are you a spiritual person? Oh, yes, I worship Aphrodite, right? It's their religion. It is their worship. They believe it. They are in their minds and in their hearts praising and lifting up the name of that idol as we do with the real God. It's a spiritual thing for them. And when it comes to things that are spiritual, there are only two forces behind it. There's no third. Anything spiritual either has God behind it or the demons, Satan. That's why Paul writes that those who sacrifice to idols are not sacrificing to God, but to demons. To put it another way, demons are the spiritual force behind all idolatry, Because the only other option is God, and we know He's not behind it. Thus, these sacrifices are to demons. They didn't know that. There are millions of worshipers of false religions today. They don't say, oh, I'm a a Satan worshiper. They would have the same view intellectually of Satan as we do. Oh, I'm anti-Satan. I hate Satan. I don't like the demons. They don't know that they're worshiping demons. They don't know that they're involved in a a religious system that's demonic. 
They would be just as offended as you would be if you called them a demon worshiper. They don't know that. They don't get it. But that's what it is because it is spiritual. And so when it's spiritual, it's either God or demons. But why does Paul just talk about the sacrifices and not the worship in general? Because he's talking to Christians. And the Christians are not worshiping the demons or the idols, but they are partaking of the sacrifices to those idols by eating the sacrificial meal after the worship service. And just as partaking in the Lord's table makes the Christian a sharer in the sacrificial work of the Lord and His people, so partaking in the idol's temple makes the Christian a sharer in the temple sacrifices and of the pagan temple worshipers. Remember, we talked about the word sharing that we saw last week being the word for fellowship. We have fellowship with Christ and with each other in and around the Lord's table. And so you see the logical conclusion that Paul is making here when people are eating at the idol's temple, which he just clarified is the demon's temple or table. And Paul, as he says at the end of verse 20, does not want the Christian to go through the same motions but at a pagan temple, at a pagan meal, thereby enacting a form of fellowship with demons and demon worshipers. All of this is more than just a physical meal. There are spiritual elements at play here, even when you acknowledge that the idols are nothing which the Corinthian believers are doing. Because the forces behind it, the demons, are indeed something. We saw something similar early on in 1 Corinthians when adultery was forbidden. It's not just a meal. It's not just sex. Outside of marriage, it's even more than just an immoral act. It involves a spiritual reality, no matter whom it is with, no matter how casual or consensual you say it is. In fact, turn back to chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, verses 15 through 17. 1 Corinthians six fifteen through 17 Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members? Same word. Members of Christ, then members of a prostitute. May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. There it is. You know that passage. It talks about the wonderful spiritual reality of marriage. And here, or there, Paul says it's the spiritual reality of any sex. Verse 17, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. So again, we see not just the spiritual side of the sin, but the contrast with the union with Christ. As Christians, we are joined to the Lord and are one spirit with Him. So we are not, as members of His body, to join with someone who is not our spouse. In the same way, as Christians, we are joined to the Lord's death and communion. So we are not, as members of His body, to join with any spiritual force that is not our God. And so the true danger and immorality of just going to that meal really comes forth for 
the Christian. He has not negated what he said earlier, where it's all about not causing the weaker brother to stumble. But now he's saying, weaker brother aside, which you'll get back to in the next passage, weaker brother aside, you need to understand what you yourself are doing in your own relationship with Christ and your commitment and profession of faith. And this is more than just a prohibition. It's more than God just saying, this is a bad idea, folks. The reality is that it's actually illogical. And that leads us to our next concluding reality of idolatry, the reality of incompatibility. The reality of incompatibility. We find this in verse 21 where Paul writes, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Again, this isn't merely a statement of prohibition. This isn't like a a secretary outside of her boss's office saying, Sir, you cannot go in there as that person is physically going in there. That's one way we use the word cannot. Paul is using the word literally. He's saying you literally cannot do this. It is a spiritual and moral impossibility because the two are absolutely incompatible. Now again... This is more than just eating a meal. You have to understand that drinking the cup and partaking of the meal creates a close and meaningful relationship between the people sharing the meal and the entity they are eating the meal in honor of. Just as we do in communion, so they do in the temple feast. I understand that this concept can be difficult to grasp in modern America where even having a a dinner with immediate family, everyone's kind of doing their own thing. You're not engaged with one another. Even Thanksgiving dinner, everyone's in their own conversation. Half the people are on their phones. You sit alone at McDonald's. You don't talk with other people. We don't have this kind of intense bonding meal anymore. But what you have to understand is this was a celebration and a common fellowship and participation with one another. And again, we saw last week how the cup of the Lord involves a unique and exclusive relationship with God through His covenant with us. Outside of Christianity, the drinking of the cup of someone meant entering into a special relationship with that individual to the point that you share the same fate. There's a closeness in sharing that cup and that bread. Listen to Psalm 16, verses 4 and 5. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. He's basically saying the sorrows of those participating in idolatry will be multiplied. And listen to the terminology he uses. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. The cup is directly connected to the God or false God of whose cup you are drinking. In the same way, the table of the Lord refers to all the blessings we enjoy because of our union with His death. 
as one who partakes in those, you cannot also partake of whatever the counterpart to God's blessings would be with the demons. Again, he's not giving advice here. He's stating a reality. You simply cannot do it. And understand that the issue Paul has is not the food itself. It's not the liquid served in the cup that's on the table. It's what they represent, and what they represent is the Lord of the meal. And when you're talking about this kind of meal, it's either, again, demons or the Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen the same principle in the context of material wealth, right? The impossibility of having both. Matthew 6, 24, you can, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And I believe that passage and that principle gives us an insight here. You can have wealth and serve the Lord. You cannot serve wealth and serve the Lord. It is impossible because you will either hate the one and love the other or vice versa. Now, when it comes to things related to idolatry, we're talking about participation, again, rather than full-blown worship and devotion. So the obvious question is this. If this is literally impossible, how is it that some of the Corinthian Christians are doing it? You're saying it's an impossibility, and yet he's addressing Christians that are actually doing it. They're there eating at the temple. It's because you have to look deeper. Like any issue in the Christian life, if we just look at the surface, just the act, just the eating, just the walking into the temple dining room, this doesn't make sense. Corinthians are eating at the temple feasts. But when Paul says that this is an impossibility, he's not saying that somehow the Christian will be unable to walk in the temple like there's an invisible shield there. Or they'll try to eat the meat and it'll just fly out of his hands or he'll vomit it up. We have to look past the physical action of eating at the temple and look deeper. By the way, with any action, and especially sins, we always need to look deeper. You see, the call to obedience in the Scriptures goes so much against the grain of society that it only makes sense when you dig deep and understand the character of God the nature of the redeemed, and the spiritual reality that those two bring when unified. In other words, why does God call this a sin? You look deeper and you look at the heart issue. You look at the representation. So, it's not impossible to eat food, to walk into a room and eat food. The problem is they're not looking deeper. They're not looking deeper and say, what does this represent? Not just this bread, but this ornate, gorgeous building that I'm sitting in. These people, those priests and priestesses that are still splattered with the blood of the meat that I'm about to eat. You've got to look deeper. Then you realize why Paul is saying it is impossible. It is impossible for you to have this type of fellowship with demons and with Christ. And by the way, what you're doing is trying to have fellowship with the demons. 
though neither you nor any of these pagan worshipers would have acknowledged that or understood that if you hadn't looked deeper. So what Paul is saying in this verse is that ultimately this is not just an issue of priorities. It's not just an issue of preferences. It's not just an issue of it being a bad idea. It is an issue of incompatibility. And as I mentioned earlier, we would do well to understand this is, this is profitable for all of our sin, to dig deeper. Look deeper and recognize the impossibility of what you are ultimately saying by your actions in regards to your walk with Christ, the fact that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Right, we can go back to, to, to the illustration we saw in Matthew 6, right? Dig deeper. When you dig deeper, you go beyond just, oh, I could have got her pregnant. As bad as it is, it's deeper than, oh, I just, I really ruined my marriage. You dig deeper and say, no, you two became one. You became one flesh. You took the spiritual reality that's supposed to be reserved only for marriage, and you did that with her, with him, with them. See, dig deeper, and then you get it. Otherwise, it's just peripheral. And you apologize to all the people and not God, and then you feel okay. You don't go deeper and understand the character of God, then you won't feel guilty because you have violated His will and you have offended God. You only feel guilty because you get, got caught. You only feel guilty when you saw Him starting to cry. Then you become a lukewarm Christian. You become a legalist. You become a lot of possibilities. And then we somehow even convince ourselves, like, yeah, I'm worshiping. What was the depth of your worship? Well, I apologize to my wife. Now I feel much better. We're on a better path. That's not all that it's about. That's important, of course, but that's peripheral. And by the way, it all, it, it's all circular, right? It's all connected. That good path that your marriage is on is going to go astray and fall onto rocky ground again because as a Christian, as Christians, you're not focusing on the worship of God first and foremost. Let your worship fix your marriage. Let your worship fix your lust. Let your worship fix your idolatry. We've got to dig deeper and you will realize that it's not just idolatry. It is any sin is incompatible with who you are and what Christ has done for your life. Well, let's move on and look at our fifth and final concluding reality of idolatry. We've seen the realities of inference, identification, immorality, incompatibility, and fifthly, the reality of instigation. Instigation. Look at the verse 22. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than He, are we? Paul ends by warning the Corinthians about inciting the jealousy and subsequent discipline of the Lord. We know God is a jealous God. You can't get very far into the Old Testament without reading that. It's found throughout the Scriptures, very prominent in the Old Testament. And what we also see in those passages is that God's jealousy is directly connected to His holiness. 
Unlike our jealousy, God's jealousy is not sinful. There are no imperfections in Him or His character, and thus no imperfections or sin in His jealousy. But like our jealousy, it does provoke anger. Again, His anger has no imperfections. It is fully righteous because of who He is. But jealousy provokes anger. In the Ten Commandments, God says that Israel was not to make for themselves an idol and they were to have no other gods before Him. You're familiar with this. Are you familiar with the reasoning that He gives right after that in verse 5 of Exodus 20? Why? He says, You should not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. You get that. When someone says, I'm jealous, don't do that because I'm jealous, you instantly understand what they mean. Right? Don't look at her, it makes me jealous. Don't look at him, it makes me jealous. Don't go there, it makes me jealous. Okay, you just want me to go to your store. You just want me to have eyes for you. You know what this means. No one else, especially not something that's fake and now we know demonic. And so, as we know, the Israelites ended up practicing idolatry and when they did, we read in Deuteronomy 32, 21, they have made me jealous with what is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols, says God. As we've said before, as believers, we will not face the punishment of the Lord and His wrath as the Israelites did, but we can face His discipline, His punishment through discipline. He has not changed. His view of idolatry has not changed just because Christ has come and died and was resurrected. And with that final question that we see, Paul reminds us that we are not stronger than God is. Paul is reminding us of our proper place in God's order of things, not just in some sort of seniority like in the workplace, but based on sheer ability and strength. To put it simply, He is God and you are not. It's the idea of not picking a fight with someone twice your size or bringing a knife to a gunfight. The point is the threat of God's discipline on those who provoke Him to jealousy. And He is very clear that idols provoke Him to jealousy. And just as He has the power to sustain our lives and protect us, in many ways, but by example, giving us a way of escape from temptation. So He has the power to punish us. Like the parent who does these things for their children, protect and punish, so God does this because He loves us. How much more do we see His love in this when there is no sinful selfishness or anger in His discipline and jealousy? as we do when we discipline our children. God loves us, and so He closes, closes with a final warning. Remember your place. Remember what God said about these idols, what it does to Him, and what it will inevitably do to you should you participate. And again, we're talking about idol worship within the temples or these days you can say idol worship is found even 
in many establishments that call themselves churches, whatever name they go by, you know what idolatry is. But we talk often about spiritual idolatries, which is probably a, a misnomer because this kind of idolatry is, a, you know, statues are spiritual idolatry. But when I say spiritual idolatry, I mean as opposed to a physical idol, a statue, a temple. Spiritual idolatries being things like wealth and success and even things that could be good as long as you don't idolize them. Things like wanting a family or your children or your spouse. And so we must be, be on the alert. We must beware of anything that we put on the throne of our hearts. Any idol. Whether it's a physical statue or a religion even if it's someone named in the Bible. I mean, th- this is how he started 1 Corinthians, right? Rebuking them for saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Christ. Right? Even if we, if we say we, we pray to one of the saints, that's idolatry. It sparks his jealousy. He does not want that. He's never commanded that. It is sinful. It doesn't matter if you somehow brought it out of the Scriptures, it's still demonic. If it is not purely and only the worship of God, very God. We must beware. It's not just me saying that. Look at the Scriptures. Look at the Scriptures. It is very clear what an idol is. And we get confused because we put the title saint before it. Or there are many churches that accept it. You say, well, I get what you're saying. I'm not part of that religion. Be very careful, my friends. Because it may be that you are listening to your favorite celebrity pastor over the Scriptures. That makes someone who would be devastated if they heard you've made them an idol, but you've made them an idol. We can make idols of politicians because they pass laws that seem to coincide with our Christian morality. We need to be careful. We make idols of gifts from God all the time. Our spouses, our kids, our homes, our cars, our money, our wedding rings, whatever it may be. We need to be careful. No one or no thing belongs on the throne of your heart except for the one who out of nothing created that heart and then died for it. So we've seen five concluding realities of idolatry. Again, I remind you that in some of the Corinthians' minds, All it was was a good meal. I mean, if you're shocked by what he's saying about demons, imagine them. They're like, I just just wanted to have a good meal. Some of them, and and this even, I believe, speaks to our modern-day idolatry that we need to be careful of. Some of them said, I went and had that temple meal because I wanted to share the gospel with the worshipers of Aphrodite. And Paul says, no. It's demonic. 
And that's where we need to be careful. Good intentions can still be unbiblical. Good intentions in the Christian's life can still be demonic. We need to be very careful. Oh man, how thankful are we that in a few chapters we'll get to 1 Corinthians 13, which so clearly defines for us what biblical love is. Rather than saying, well, Hollywood says love is this, and my ex-girlfriend insisted I didn't love her because I didn't do this. My wife says love is this, and so it's just subjective, right? And so we're thankful that he says, no, even love is this, this, and this. And you'll see as we go through those 15 descriptions of love that many of them go against what our secular society says love is. And so we have to stick with the Bible. And my point in bringing that up is sometimes we say, well, God says I need to love, and so I'm not going to rebuke because I know it's going to make them upset. That's not biblical love. In fact, you're doing damage to them because you're more concerned about their feelings than you are about their relationship with God. And there you see right there in the name of love how good intentions can be demonic in the Christian's life. Dig deeper. Look deeper. They just wanted a good meal. Others, as we saw, are pulling out the theology card and saying, idols are nothing, Paul. You agree with me. What's the big deal? It's like watching a cartoon. It's nothing. But again, we must go deeper and have a genuine fear and high view of God. And with all of this in mind, If you are still willing to participate in the profane, then this really reveals your heart. And you really need to have a heart checkup and what your priorities are. Are you looking lightly at and taking advantage of, and I mean that to the full extent of how we use that in our language, taking wrongful advantage of Christ's death on the cross for you. In other words, I'm forgiven so I can partake. Amen, I won't lose my salvation, so one foot in the world. Man, that's fun. It's not about being afraid to lose your salvation. It's about worshiping God and understanding He is worthy and having a deep-seated fear of Him and a high view of God and a biblical view of sin and who you are. Paul has not only given us arguments that explain our nature as the redeemed and participants in the sacrifice of Christ, but also given us a final argument based on the holy character of God. And so though they should play a part in your understanding of your life, being self-aware, being a true lover of others in the church primarily and of the secular world, You have to understand the holy character of God. Because if your actions are just dictated by the horizontal plane in your relationships with others, how it affects others, how it affects your reputation, how it affects your feelings, then you're a good person. And your actions are those of a really good person. Very thoughtful. Thank you. And I hope you see what's missing there.
I don't want to be a good person. I want to be a worshiper of Christ. I don't want to be respected. I want Him to be. We've got to understand the depth and the reality of our sin and the mind-blowing and in many ways incomprehensible wonders of our holy God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, by Your grace and Your blood, we can be so much more than just good people. Thank You that You have given us Your Spirit, that You have given us redemption and a new heart, that we can do these things. And I pray, Father, that we would be a church, we would be a people that digs deeper, that doesn't dare stop at just the practical realities of what our actions may entail, but that we would look in the Scriptures and we would have a high view of You, that we would hate our sin, that we would live not just so everyone is happy and that our our guilt has gone away because we have the forgiveness of other people, but because we want to love You more, we want to worship You more, all not because we want to earn Your forgiveness, but because we already are forgiven by You. Help us to see how these principles play out in our daily interactions, our daily decisions, our secret sins, and our gray areas in our lives so that we will worship You the way You have saved us to worship You. In Jesus' name.